in this morning's text, straight in the eyes, and he says, listen, I've got something really important to say to you. I've filled your sails with the winds of encouragement for three chapters. For the majority of the letter, I've, I've told you how proud I am of you, how, how much I love you, how encouraged I am by you. But this morning, Paul is saying, listen, as well as you are doing, you need to continue to strive for holiness. You need to continue to fight. And I get that, that continue language from the end of verse 1 where he says to do it more and more. Now, because these verses are an exhortation to action, uh, you might be tempted to see this text as a more man-centered approach to holiness. You know, last week was you know, a more God-centered approach. This week is a more man-centered approach to holiness. Well, friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I've titled this morning's sermon, A Godward Exhortation to Holiness. The reason why I titled it this way is because as I read the text, I saw that even as Paul was calling the Thessalonians to holiness, calling them to examine themselves, calling them to push, to strive, to fight, he did so while keeping their eyes fixed on God. The whole way through. You see, it's true that in order for us to grow in holiness, we do have to examine ourselves. We do have to look at our lives. We do have to look in the spiritual mirror, if you will. But if we look at ourselves too often, or in the wrong way, or for too long, we will forget that God is the source of any holiness that we can hope to achieve in this life. Scottish pastor and theologian Robert Murray McShane once said that for every look that we take at ourselves, we should look at Christ ten times. I think that ratio is about right, and I I think that this text will bear that out. So let me read the text for us together, and then we will pray and dive in. Starting in chapter 4. Verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice, that we would not disregard what you have to say to us in your word, that you would help us to cherish it, to be focused. We pray that any attempts of Satan this morning to try to prevent us from hearing and receiving your word, that you would squash that, and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. In your son's mighty name we pray. Amen. Okay, note takers, I've got six points for you this morning. Six points 
Point number one, the will of God. And they're all going to be of God. So if you just want to kind of do that with an ellipsis. Point number one, the will of God. Point number two, the commands of God. Point number three, the pleasure of God. Number four, the knowledge of God. Number five, the vengeance of God. And point number six, the Holy Spirit of God. The will, commands, pleasure, knowledge, vengeance, and Holy Spirit. If you didn't get all those, I'll try to hit them as I go back through. Now, each one of these points highlights the way in which this text directs our, our, our hearts towards God, even as God is calling us to pursue personal holiness. So the first point in this morning's sermon directs our eyes to the will of God. Point number one, the will of God. So, who here this morning wants to know what God's will is for their life? All right? Huh? Well, I've got good news for you. I can tell you from this text this morning what God's will is for you. Look at verse 3 of this morning's text. For this is the will of God. All right, sweet. I've been looking for this verse for a long time. Okay, this is the will of God. You are sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Friends, you should know that nowhere in the Bible are we promised that God will illuminate the paths of providence that lie before us. I, don't, I know you've probably read like a hundred promises from God for your life, those little daily devotionals, or maybe you grew up in a church that trained you to think about pursuing God's will in the minutia, like what job you should take or which college you should enroll in or what person you should marry. And, and you've maybe been trained to think like, I need to go to the Bible for answers to those questions. But God's word doesn't really tell you those things. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. It doesn't speak with the kind of specificity we would often like it to. What the Bible does when it speaks about God's will for our lives is it, it kind of uses broad brushstrokes and it tells us general things that help us reason our way down into the more particular things. So for example, if you're wondering if you should commit sexual sin with this person, the answer to that based off of this morning's text is obviously no. God's will for your life is that you avoid sexual immorality and that you pursue sanctification. God's calling on your life. His will for you is clearly laid out in the text if you have the eyes to see it. Now, why does Paul talk about the will of God here in this text as he is exhorting the Thessalonians to holiness? Why does he bring up the will of God? Well, I think it's for this reason. One of the defining marks of a Christian more than anything else in the world is that we want our will, our individual, private, personal will to line up with God's will. That's why the Lord Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he says this. He says, pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is when, when us as God's children, when we talk to our dad, one of the things that we're asking is, hey, God, we want your will to be done here on earth, which means in our lives. So it's very significant that as Paul exhorts these Thessalonians to in, increased and continued holiness, he does so by saying, this is God's will for you. He's appealing to something that all Christians should have in common. The second way 
that this text directs our hearts to God is by calling our attention to the commands of God, which is point number two, the commands of God. One of the most surefire ways that you can really make sure that you're walking in God's will is to just be obedient to God's commands. Obedience to the commands of Christ is right at the heart of Christian discipleship. You guys remember the wording of the Great Commission, right? Jesus sends his disciples out to all the nations, and he says, all right, here's what you're supposed to tell people. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. In this morning's text, Paul is going to talk about one specific aspect of holiness. He's going to address sexual immorality, we presume, because there was an issue of sexual immorality in the church. Maybe some Christians had begun to go back into their old sexual lifestyle. And as he does that, he's very careful to let everyone know, all the Thessalonians, that his commands about sexual holiness are not his own. He's very clear to let these Thessalonian Christians know that what he's telling them is from the Lord. You see that in two ways. In verse 1, Paul says, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, we urge you in the Lord Jesus? Well, it means that what he's saying is, is like, this is not my teaching. I'm, I'm telling you what I've received from Christ, what we all know to be the clear commands of Christ about sexual morality. In verse 2, he says the same thing, but kind of in a different way. Look there. He says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Again, so the first one is, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. The second one is the commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Either way, the point is plain. Paul is trying to make sure that they know that he's not giving his own opinion about their sexual lifestyle. He's saying, what I'm giving you is something, remember from our Wednesday night Bible, studies guide, Bible study guys, uh, this is what I received and this is what I'm delivering to you. Now, there's some pretty easy application here that I've, I've given us before, but it's so good, it, it bears giving again. Parents, it is supremely important for you as you disciple your children to make sure that your children know that the moral and ethical commands that you give them for their lives are not your opinions. You have to make sure that your children know that you're not just sort of inventing it as you go, that the things that you tell them to do and to not do or else they're going to be in big trouble, that's just not something that you're coming up with on the fly or that it's not just something that we do in our family or we do because we're Baptist or we do because we're American or we do because if you do that or don't do that, it's going to give me a headache or it's going to drive your mom crazy. I mean, sometimes we have to say that because it's true. But ultimately, especially about the really big things in life, we have to make sure our children know that these commands come from the Lord, not from us. Because you know what? One day you're not going to be there. One day they're going to go off to college and, and you know what? Your opinion's not going to matter that much, maybe. Maybe the opinion that's really going to matter to them is their freshman English teacher or their sophomore philosophy teacher. Oh, the way he talks about Kierkegaard. I could just sit and listen to him all day. Well, guess what? He's also an atheist, and he's going to tell your kids all kinds of things about how they should live their moral lives. Now, if they are not rooted and grounded in the reality that the moral truths of the universe come from God, then you're going to be in big trouble. Your kids 
are going to be in big trouble. You're going to wonder what happened, what went wrong. One of the easiest ways to do that is to just be so quick to pull out the Bible. Be annoyingly quick to pull out the Bible. I'm at the point now with one of my children where whenever I go to tell her a story about my childhood to show her how spoiled she is, how good she has it, she goes, I know, uh, you didn't have any money, you know. I get it, yeah, I know, I knew you were going to tell me that story, right? That's how it should be with us in God's word. We should just be so quick to pull out the Bible and say, hey, the way you were treating your sister or the way you disrespected your teacher, or the way you did this, or the reason why we do this as a family. Let me show you, this is where it comes from. It's just one of the tiny practical things that you can do as a parent to make sure that over the course of however many years you have with your children in the home, that they know, even if you never have to say it, they know that what you're teaching them doesn't come from you, it comes from God. And this doesn't apply only to parents, of course. It applies for me as the pastor of this church, Grant, an elder of the church, men who are in elder training, those who aspire to be elders. This applies to you as well. One of the things that God calls you to do as a shepherd is to counsel people, to tell them what they shouldn't do, shouldn't, shouldn't do with their lives. I mean, in a very real way, we are often the people who tell people what God's will is for their lives. Not who they should marry, of course, but maybe you've been a member of a church like that where everyone has a prophecy about who is supposed to be married to who. But no, we just say, hey, this is God's will for your life, that you pursue God in this way. And listen, if you're going to do that as a shepherd in God's church, you cannot do it without an open Bible. You have to constantly be prepared to show people, listen, this is not my opinion. This is not something that I learned from my professor in seminary, and he's really smart, so you should listen to him. Or this is what we believe in our denomination, so you should listen to us and do it this way. When I came to this church, I had a lot of work to do. Long before me, when Grant was trying to kind of begin the church revitalization process, he had a lot of work to do, kind of undoing some stuff. And it was very key in those moments that Grant didn't just say, well, you know, I think this way is better. It was very important for me when I got here and made some changes to not just go, guys, trust me, I'm your leader, follow me. It was very important that I was like, guys, you know, I don't really know whose opinion is right, but I'm pretty sure that this text right here is is right. So this is what we're going to do. Even in your one-on-one discipleship, as you're trying to love one another and encourage one another and exhort one another and rebuke one another, as we counsel one another with the truths of God's word, we should be very quick to just pull out our Bible. Hey, brother, sister, I'm not really sure, but maybe this verse has some bearing on what we're talking about right now. Point number three, the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. In verse 1, Paul says that the Thessalonians must walk, remember that just means to live, in a way that is pleasing to God. Look there. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. To please God. Now remember the context here. Once again, this is dealing with sanctification and sexual immorality. I think it's significant that we just pause and reflect on the fact that, believe it or not, obeying Jesus' sexual ethic is not uniquely difficult for 21st century Americans. The city of Thessalonica was, like most cities of ancient Rome, rife with sexual immorality, prostitution, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, 
if transgenderism was a thing. It would have been there. You name it, they had it. And that's why Paul uses the Greek word here, porneia, when he talks about sexual immorality. When you see that in the text, sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. And that's just kind of a junk drawer Greek word that you can just, any kind of sexual perversion you can think of, you can just throw it in that junk drawer. It's, it's all-encompassing. And it was rife in the city of Thessalonica. Now, put yourself in the shoes of a Thessalonian. Imagine that you're there in that city, that you've grown up in a world of pagan idolatry, where sensual pleasure rules the day. Now, imagine that you've never read a scripture that has ever said anything to you about controlling your flesh. And imagine that you've never heard a sermon that has exhorted you to holiness. Imagine that you've never had a parent try to instruct you on the ways that you should honor God with your body. That's the average Thessalonian. Now, here comes the Apostle Paul. He comes preaching Christ in Christ crucified, the King in his kingdom, the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. And he tells you the story of the universe. And as you listen to it, you are bowled over by it. Not only do you believe it, but you want to believe it. This story is the most beautiful story you've ever heard. You're captured by it. And you believe in it. You believe that it is the story. And so then you begin to orient the contours of your moral and ethical lives around that story. But believing in this story means that everything in your life has to change in some way. Your view of money has to change. Your view of family Love, politics, sex. If you used to visit prostitutes, you must stop. If you used to try and take the wives of other men, you must do so no longer. If you used to engage in shameful deeds in the dark, now you must walk in the light. Now, imagine that you're Paul, missionary, church planter, pastor. You love this church. You've seen God move so powerfully in this church. You've seen these people turn away from their sin and turn to Christ. You've seen these people bear real fruit of the Holy Spirit as they endure persecution. And you've also seen some Christians struggle after they've come into the church. And on some Sundays where you expect them to be gathering with you, listening to scripture, listening to your sermon, you find out that they've been back in the temple visiting prostitutes. Maybe you find out that a man in the church took his husband's wife. And you love these people so much, you're so anxious for them. Even the ones that are doing well now, you're worried that that they'll get caught up, that they'll get caught slipping and they'll end up indulging in the flesh and going back out there and committing these heinous sins. So what do you do if you're in that, shoe, in that position, if you're in Paul's shoes, what do you do? What do you say to these Christians that you love so much to help them continue down the path of holiness, which is potholed with opportunities for them to fail? Do you 
rattle off statistics about STDs? All right, well, that's a little anachronistic. They didn't have statistics about them back then. But do you talk to them about the diseases that you can get from visiting prostitutes? Well, there are certainly bodily consequences for using our bodies for sin in this world. But if you're a good pastor, that's probably not where you're going to start, right? Do you, do you shame them? Well, there certainly is a place for godly shame uh, in the Christian life, but you're a good pastor. You're not going to start there. Do you scare them? You know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's, that's true. And Paul is going to tap into that wellstream of, uh, wellspring of fear in verse 6. But notice, Paul does not begin there. Where does Paul begin? He begins with the pleasure of God. In verse 1, as he begins this conversation, he says, walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. As Paul is talking to these Christians, he understands that their obedience or lack thereof is a matter of motivation. So what does he point to to motivate them to sexual purity? He points to the pleasures of God. He says, is it pleasing to the Father? Will it make Dad happy? See, friends, Christians love God. He is our Father. And if, if, if He is our Father and He has been as good to us as we believe that He has been in the gospel, then what that means for us is that we should want to please Him. That is our greatest aim in this life. The reason why we want our will to line up with God's will is because we ultimately want to do that which is pleasing to God. You have to remember, friends, that all obedience to the commands of Christ boil down to our inner motivations. All obedience to the commands of Christ ultimately are matters of the heart. If I choose to do something or to not do something, my choices are based on my desires. This is the reason why Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Okay, yeah, we, we get that. But then he goes on to, to talk about stuff like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. According to Jesus, sexual immorality comes out of our hearts. So when Paul goes to try to encourage the saints to pursue sexual holiness, he doesn't begin with external things. He begins with the heart. And he goes to the deepest possible place that he can go in the heart of a Christian. Will it make God happy? Human beings are not machines, friends. We are not just a system of levers and pulleys. We have these intangible things about us that the scientific method can certainly examine and try to describe, but can in no way explain mind, will, emotions, the consciousness. Whenever we make a decision, even if we don't consciously understand that decision, we do so because of the deepest desires of our hearts. And Paul, as a good pastor, wants to tap into those. Do you remember those... Um, WWJD bracelets. They were like all the rage when I was a kid, but because I was a little pagan, they didn't mean anything to me. I was just like, oh, everybody's wearing it? Okay, I got one too. 
I know that those bracelets were kind of cheesy and they're grounded in a kind of like uh, lowbrow theology of Christian decision making. You know, would Jesus vote for Trump or Biden? Hard to say, you know. But that sentiment wasn't entirely out of line with this idea that Paul, uh, this emphasis, the way that Paul approaches this matter. What if we brought those bracelets back, but instead of, hear me out, <laughs> WWJD, we had ITPTTF? Huh? Is this pleasing to the Father? All right. Maybe we don't need the bracelets. But friends, I bet your walk with the Lord, your pursuit of holiness, would be so much more fulfilled, so much easier, if you began with this simple question. This thing that I'm about to do, this decision that I'm making right now, is what I'm about to do or not do pleasing to the God who saved me? Before going on to the next point, uh, can I just tell you one of the obvious implications of this point here? Uh, it is possible for us to please God by doing good in this life. I know that in our church where we take doctrine very seriously and where we're, I think, fair to say the majority of us from the Reformed camp, you know, we got like big God, big holy God theology, which means we have a very low view of man, you know, the sinfulness of man and we love Puritans who talk about how we're just vile, wretched bags of worms, you know, and all that other stuff. Guys, sometimes we can take that too far. We can forget the fact that it is possible for us as Christians to live our lives in such a way that puts a smile on God's face. As corny as that sounds, and I know it sounds corny. But it is possible for us to please God. In the same way that it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit, it's possible for us to please our Father as we continue to look more like His Son. What else could be more pleasing to the Father than for all of His other children to be more like Jesus? How could that not please Him? Friends, don't be more reformed than the Bible. Okay, moving on. Point number four. The knowledge of God. As Paul is calling the Thessalonians to holiness, he's drawing their attention to the knowledge of God. Friends, human beings were made to enjoy God. Moreover, we were made to please God. And yet we rebel against Him. We pursue our own pleasure over and above His. We love ourselves more than the God who made us. And the reason why is Paul gives us the answer in verse 5. Look there. As he's telling the Thessalonians to control their passions, look at the language he uses. He says, don't give rain to your passions like Gentiles do who don't know God. There's something about not knowing God, according to Paul's logic here, there's something about not knowing God that leads us to give ourselves over to the sins of the flesh, to the desires of lust. What we see here is the intermingling of our knowledge and desires. The Gentiles don't know God, and therefore they have no care to please Him. But here's the thing about us. We do know God. But even if we didn't, human beings were created by God to receive pleasure. I know that sometimes Christianity is painted as this religion that's like, does that feel good? You can't do it. Does that taste good? You can't eat it. You know? 
But that's, that actually could not be further from the truth. God designed this world and he designed you to be beings that enjoy. He designed you for pleasure. In case you forgot, in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it did not begin with God saying, don't eat this and don't touch that and don't smell this and don't look over there. The Bible begins with God saying, take and eat. The Bible begins with God walking with man in the garden. The Bible begins with God saying, be fruitful and multiply. God started off this whole big, crazy universe that we're living in by saying, enjoy me, enjoy this world that I've created, enjoy sex, enjoy children, enjoy the family, enjoy community, enjoy all of it. You can also see this truth in the way that Jesus motivates his followers, right? Not only, he does talk about hell, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but he also says things like, store up for yourselves treasures, in heaven. The author of Hebrews talks about the joy that's set before us. Right? There's a pleasure that we're supposed to be pursuing that's supposed to help us here now. Why? Because we were created for pleasure. And this aspect of our humanity does not change just because we've fallen in sin. We don't just stop pursuing pleasure. Well, what happens? Well, we merely redirect that pleasure-seeking impulse, right? We were created to look to God and go, ah, I find my pleasure in you. And then sin comes and we go, no, I'm going to find pleasure in myself and in the things of this world. Uh, A very long time ago, uh, one theologian talked about this by saying that we became curved in on ourselves. We're supposed to be outwardly directed, seeking our pleasure from God, but then sin causes us to curve in on ourselves. That's what happens when we don't know God. In Galatians 4, Paul makes this knowledge and passion dynamic even clearer. He says this, Those who do not know God are slaves to their passions. And that's the point. Paul is telling the Thessalonians, You do know God. It would have made sense for you to go and visit temple prostitutes to engage in pedophilia, bestiality, to take your father's wife. It would have made sense when you were Gentiles when you didn't know God. But you know God. And so now you have the ability to uncurl yourself, to direct that pleasure impulse back out towards God. You have the ability to control the desires of your heart because you are being controlled by God himself as he lives in you, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. I want to be clear here, friends, that the knowledge that Paul is talking about here is not mere intellectual knowledge. I've been trying to evangelize a young man for about two years now, and he's one of the smartest people I know, and he knows a lot of theology. And not long ago, he told me, he said, you know, I just don't think Christ is real to me. It's possible for us to have a kind of knowledge about God that does not give us any ability to reign in the desires of our flesh. A mere intellectual knowledge. The knowledge that Paul is talking about in these verses is an intimate knowledge, the the biblical form of to know. The example that I use for this often is in Spanish, there's actually two different verbs for to know. One is saber, and that's 
the verb that speaks to your uh, having knowledge about something, you know? So listen, I've never been to Lebanon, but I could go read Wikipedia and I could know about it, right? That would be saber, to have information of it. But then there's a second Spanish verb, conocer, and it's to know. And that would be if somebody said, hey, do you know Blaine? I would say, yes, lo conozco, I know him. What I mean there is not that I have a mere intellectual knowledge of who Blaine is and the terrible red shoes that he wears. It would mean that I know Blaine because I've hugged Blaine and I've spent time with Blaine and I've done life with Blaine and I've had to put up with Blaine. It's an intimate knowledge. That is the knowledge of God that we possess. And the only reason we possess that is because we have been known by God. Friends, we are not created to have mere information in our heads about God. That is not what being a Christian is all about. And that is a danger in a church like ours where we take doctrine and theology very seriously. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that 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 existential longing that you feel, that's because you were created for something greater than what you now know. It's because you were created for a pleasure greater than any pleasure that you can experience here and now. I know that you get little bursts of endorphins and they hit you every so often, some of us more often than others, and you think, ah, yes, this is good. Friends, I'm telling you, if you only knew how good it could be, those little little pleasure hits that you experience from whatever it is that you indulge in, it is nothing compared to the eternal pleasure that God has prepared for you with himself in heaven. One of the things that's so crazy about sexual immorality is that we so often pursue sexual sin as a means of pleasure when God has in fact given us sex as a form of pleasure that ultimately points to our union with him. There's no deeper bond, there's no greater connection that two human beings can have for one another than when they come together in a one flesh physical union. God didn't just give us that so we can make babies. I mean, he did give that to us so we should make babies. But he gave that to us so that we could understand something of what it's like to be united with him. So what's so crazy about sexual morality is that sex is a gift that God has given us to point us back to him. And we often use it to turn away from him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that as a Christian, I do know God. And it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I think that's true of everyone in this room who professes to be a Christian. And I just want to ask you, can you say that you have an intimate relationship with God in this way? And if not, why not? And also, aren't you tired of being a slave to your desires? And then finally, wouldn't you rather know God and be known by God and let those desires be reoriented by the God who made and loves you. Point number five. The vengeance of God. In this text, in this morning's text, Paul points to God over and over again as he exhorts his people to holiness. He begins by pointing to the pleasure of God and then the will of God and then the commands of God and then the grace of knowing God. And now finally, as we come to the end of the text in verse six, He points to the wrath of God. Look there. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger. 
in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Friends, it is commonly thought that fear has no place in the Christian life. That is not true. It is sometimes taught by people who should know better that we should never try to motivate Christians by using fear. This is also not true. If you don't believe me, uh, just pick a gospel. Mark, that's a short one. Go read it this afternoon and see how much Jesus uses fear as a motivating factor for his followers. You see, friends, it is a good thing for us to be terrified by that which is terrible. It is good for us to be afraid of those things that deserve our fear. And the wrath of God is deserving of our, of our fear to the superlative degree. If we love someone the way that Paul loves these Thessalonians, then we will warn them about the wrath of God. One pastor calls this verse here uh, a, a shotgun blast over the head of the Thessalonians. He's not trying to kill them. He's trying to warn them. He's letting them know that there is something worse than shame. There's something worse than sexually transmitted disease if you engage in this sexual immorality. There's something worse than the destruction of your family. It's the vengeance of God. And Paul, in his love, exhorts them to avoid that at all costs. Now you'll notice uh, some of the language here. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Uh, this is one of the few times, guys, where I just have to tell you that as I studied this this week, I just, I'm not really sure what Paul is referencing there. I'm not sure what he's referring to. It's, it's just a very obscure part of this letter. Sometimes it's difficult to understand things like this because it's like we're just listening to someone have a, a, a phone conversation and we can only hear one side of it. Uh, it could be a number of different things, uh, none of which I'm confident in to tell you this is exactly what's happening. But, but I can tell you that I think, I, let me tell you what I think we can say with certainty. There is a kind of sexual sin that is taking place in the church at Thessalonica that has wrongly affected other people. It has harmed other people, probably, because he uses the word brother, other Christians in the church. And that's why Paul talks about God as being an avenger. The idea here is that your sexual sin has affected someone else in such a way that justice needs to be meted out. Vengeance needs to be doled out. Someone has to pay the price for the way that you've hurt someone with your sexual sin. Enter God, the worker of justice, the avenger of those who think that they can do evil with impunity. There are three things I want us to focus on while we're here. Number one, in political conversations, you'll often hear people talk about victimless crimes, right? All my libertarians in the room, this is what you love to talk about. It's a victimless crime. Let them do what they want to do. Freedom. It is very often the case that Christians tend to talk about different kinds of sin in this way right? We'll say it's a victimless sin. And if we don't say that, because we'll probably never say that, we'll just think it, right? Like this sin doesn't really affect anyone. We'll say, okay, I won't have an affair with that married woman because that would, you know, destroy her family, right? But gluttony or me watching pornography in a room alone in the dark, that doesn't really affect anyone. So even though I know it's bad, it's not as bad. There are a couple of different problems with this way of thinking, 
the first of which is we're, we're just not very good at reasoning about how and if uh, our sins actually do affect other people. So let me just give you one example, the example of pornography, which is probably the most ubiquitous sin wherein Christians justify it because they think it doesn't hurt anyone. It's just me and myself on my, with my screen in a room alone somewhere. The first reason why that, that, that is not a, an accurate way to think about pornography is that the, the pornography industry is a firebed of sex trafficking, abuse, rape, and all other kinds of horrible things that you are oblivious to as you just sit there in your room alone at night watching your screen. Every time someone watches one of these videos, they are creating an economic demand that will be supplied by evil people pulling the, levels of dark, excuse me, the levers of darkness in a world that you probably don't even know exists. The second reason why that's not accurate is that growing accustomed to pornography uh, will affect your spouse if you're married. And if you're not married, it will affect your future spouse in ways that I can't really talk about from the pulpit, but I would be more than happy to talk to you about in private or send you an article. But let's just say that you watching pornography will certainly affect anyone that you marry. Number three, finally and most importantly, it affects God. In the same way that our deeds can please God, they can also grieve God. That's why the Apostle Paul says elsewhere to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So even if no one ever knows, and even if you can tell me, Sean, my pornography will never affect my relationship with my wife, it will affect your relationship with God, and it will grieve him. Moreover, your sexual sin, if you're a Christian, affects God in a more direct way being that his Holy Spirit lives in us in our body, and whenever we commit sexual sins with our body, it affects the God who lives in us. We'll talk about that a little later. The second thing that I want us to see here in this point is that warning is an act of love. I've kind of already hinted at that, but I just want to hang out on it more explicitly. At the end of verse 6, Paul says this. He says, speaking of back when he was with the Thessalonians, he says, as I solemnly warned you, I love the fact that he uses the word solemn there. It's not a light warning. It's not a casual warning. It's a solemn. It's, it, solemn is the language that we use of people when they're at a funeral, you know. Jenny, I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, this is Paul's tone. This is his posture as he warns the Thessalonians. And you have to remember how much he loves them. He loves them so much, he just can't wait to get back to them. And when he can't get back to him, he sends somebody else back to him. And when he can't send somebody else back to him, he, he prays for them. He loves them so much. This is his church. And this letter has been so full of encouragement and positivity. It's been filled with all kinds of squishy, warm, fuzzy stuff. But Paul's love does not prevent him from warning the Thessalonians. It compels him to warn the Thessalonians. Friends, this is a truth that you can take with you into every area of your life as a Christian. Back to parents. Your love for your children should compel you to warn them about where their sin and rebellion will lead them if they don't listen to God and his word. In the life of this church, if you love your brother and sister in Christ and if you see them in sin, your love for them should compel you to warn them of the path that they're walking down. If you have friends and family members, I think about it as we just passed Christmas, I hope that you found opportunities to try to share the gospel 
with those that you love most who don't know Christ. I hope your love for them compelled you to try to find some way to bring it up, to talk about the hard things, to get awkward. I gave a book to a, an unbelieving guy at the, the gym where I trained this week, and it was super awkward. He, I could tell he did not want to be having this conversation. And then it was awkward the next time I talked to him. I don't care. I love him. I know what God says about what is going to happen to him when he dies. And I know that he thinks that he has plenty of time. And that's not true at all. Or maybe it's true. But even in the grand scheme of things, it's not true. So I tried. And this book was, I think, a warning for his soul. Who do you know that you think, man, I really should warn them. I really should tell them about this God who is an avenger against sin and wickedness and evil. Man, I'm so afraid. I'm so embarrassed. I don't want it to ruin our relationship. I don't want things to get weird. Who do you need to talk to? The third thing is, I want us to consider in this point the reality that no matter how cool or intellectually stimulating or accessible or popular or loving, and I'm using air quotes for a reason, you try to make Christianity sound to unbelievers, it will never be accepted by carnal men. It will never be accepted by the world. And the reason why is because you cannot extricate this kind of stuff from the gospel, the stuff from this morning's text. Like, for example, God's call for sexual purity. You can't extricate that from the gospel. You cannot extricate the reality of God's wrath from the gospel. Earlier in our sermon, I told you to imagine that you lived in a, a world that was promiscuous and, and hypersexualized. You know, you were in Thessalonica in the first century. Well, you shouldn't have really had to try very hard to imagine yourself in a world like that because you live in a world like that. You live in a hypersexualized, hypersensual, promiscuous world. And there is nothing more offensive that you can say to the people in this world and our culture today than something like this. There is a God who will pour out his wrath on all who transgress his holy law. Speaking to matters of sexuality, there is nothing more offensive that you can say to people in our culture today than the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which we read as our call to repentance. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and so on, and so on, and so on. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot say anything more offensive than that to the people in this culture today because our identity is so bound up with our sexuality that to say that some aspect of our sexuality is not okay with God is to destroy our identity. Many Christian leaders are so desperate to see the world come into the church, that they will edit out parts of the gospel that chafe against our American idolatry. So a text like this morning's text, it just won't be preached. It just won't be preached. You're just never going to hear this text preached on. Or it will be edited 
or it will be explained away. No, you see, when, when, when it says here that God is an avenger against sexual sin, what that actually means, if you know the Greek like I know the Greek, what it means is that he's totally cool with it. I mean, not really, but that's kind of how it goes, right? When the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, well, no, what he, doesn't, what he means there is that in a non-committed, loving relationship, homosexuality is a sin. When it says that fornication is not okay or divorce, you can just go down the line. It doesn't matter. They're trying to find a way to change it so that people will feel comfortable with their sin, so that the goats can come into the church and feel at home in the sheep pen. Instead, they should be telling the goats that they are goats and tell them that there is a shepherd who can make them sheep if they will repent from their sins and trust in Christ. You remember from, uh, from our assurance of pardon, I just, I love the balance of the Bible. Paul does not hold back. He doesn't pull any punches. He calls sin, sin. And this is from 1 Corinthians. It would have been just as offensive to them as it is to us in our culture. He calls sin, sin. And then he goes on and he says, and such were some of you. And, and we say that to ourselves this morning. Such were some of us. In one way or another, all of us. What that means is that when we do talk to our friends and our neighbors about their sin and how it's leading them down a terrible path, if this was us, then it should change the way that we talk with them. We should have a certain tone, a gentleness, a sense of grace that seasons our speech, a love, a patience, even as we tell them the truth. Number six, point six. Finally, Paul calls our attention to the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse eight. Therefore, whoever disregards this, that's what he said thus far, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here we see Paul uh, implying what he quite explicitly states elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own. So what Paul is saying this morning, at the, as he kind of wraps up this little uh, moral exhortation, is, uh, hey, listen, this body doesn't belong to you. You can't use it however you want to use it. You don't own this body. You're a renter. You know? When you rent somebody's house, you have to treat it differently than you, own, than you do when you own your own house. But I think we'd be wrong to stop there. I think, I think we'll miss the flavor, the, the heart behind Paul's words here if we stop there, if we think that Paul is just saying something like, it's not yours, so don't mess it up. Although he is saying that. I think what we see here is Paul saying something a little bit deeper. I think Paul is saying, God has given himself to you. Right? Look at that verse again. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, 
who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Right? I think Paul, what he's doing here is, is he's showing the Corinthians how, excuse me, the, the Thessalonians, how crazy it is that they're giving their bodies up to sin when God has given his Holy Spirit to them. When he's given them this relationship, when he's honored them by coming to live in them, how crazy it is and that they would indulge in these passions and the lust of their flesh. I think that's true, friends. How crazy it is, is it of us to give our bodies up to sin when Christ gave his body up to save us from sin? All right, in closing, the Bible is, you can add this as a seventh point if you want. It just doesn't really fit like that, the God theme. The Bible is full of uh, descriptions and prescriptions and explanations in its teaching. But the explanations in the Bible are a little bit more rare than the first two. The Bible does a lot of describing and prescribing, telling you what's happening and what you should do in light of what's happening. But it's not so often that it actually explains exactly what's going on, especially at a deeper level. You get some of that in like Romans 9. If you're like being chosen by God, predestination, I don't understand it, it's so scary. Can you explain it to me? The closest you'll get is like Romans 9, okay? In Romans 1, Paul explains the spiritual dynamics of how this world came to be as sexually immoral as it is. Can you, can you turn there with me? Let's go to Romans chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 24. As you're turning there, let me remind you about this letter. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, which is, there are some Jewish people in it, but it's also very heavily pagan. And this, this letter is in one sense a missionary fundraising letter, but it does so by way of theological education. One of the things that Paul does is he, he just, he wants people to know how they can be reconciled to God, how they can be justified. He does that over the course of like 15 chapters. Okay, but he has to begin with sin and explaining why the world is as broken and sinful as it is. And he begins very early on by talking about sexual sin, which I think is probably the most prominent expression of our fallen nature. He says this, starting in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. See, friends, what we, what we learn here is that God gave us up to our passions because we exchanged the truth about him for a lie. But when we're saved, what we do is we reverse that. We exchange that lie for the truth once again. God opens our eyes, helps our hearts to see the truth. And then as Christians, what we usually do is we have to spend the rest of our lives trying to reorder our passions. You see, we rejected God and then he gave us over to our passions and things just got crazy. Then we receive God, but our flesh, this, this body that we live in, and a lot of the remnants of that junk in our heart, it still leaves us with disoriented passions. And so we have to struggle and we have to fight. What I want to tell you this morning is that it's normal for you to struggle as a Christian in a fallen world. 
it's normal for us in the church to have people who are wrestling with various kinds of sexual sin. If somebody came up to me after the service and said, I want to talk, and we went back in my office and they said, Sean, I got to tell you, I was, I was a gay man before I came to know Christ. And now that I'm a Christian, I'm just having a really hard time. That would not strike me as odd in the slightest. If you came up to me and said, Sean, can you help me? I'm really wrestling with pornography. I, I don't want to do it anymore. But I just, I can't get my desires under control. That would not surprise me in the slightest. It makes perfect sense. I've wrestled through that myself. I continue to wrestle, wrestle through disordered desires. If you came up to me and confessed, Sean, I have been having marriage, uh, sex outside of marriage, and I don't want to do this, and I just keep falling back into it, it would not shock me in the slightest. You're in the right place. You can't fix that on your own. We have to fix that together. We have to reorient our desires to God together. The operative word here is fighting. The most important word in all of this is that you are fighting. See, friends, as long as you are fighting, you can have confidence that you really do belong to the Lord. It's when you stop fighting that you have to be worried. It's when you give up and you just let the passions and desires of your flesh rule the day. It's when the fact that Christ gave his body up for your sins doesn't matter at all for how you use your body. When the reality of God's Holy Spirit living in you doesn't affect you in the slightest, that's when you should be concerned. When you know that your sexual lifestyle is out of line with the will of God for your life and it doesn't phase you, you should be concerned. When you care more about sexual pleasure than pleasing God, the God who loves you and made you. Friends, then you may not be a Christian. But if you are fighting, keep fighting. And as you do, let this message, let these verses encourage your soul to keep your eyes focused on God the entire time. The second you take your eyes off Christ in this fight, you may lose. So keep your eyes on Christ as you fight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given your son to us. As we think about him on the cross, first dying for our sins, and then buried, and then raised triumphant, we see the fullness of glory that you prepared us for in our humanity. And we know what you're calling us to, God. And we are heartbroken over the fact that we fail to live up to the holiness that you've called us to, but we are so full of joy to know that we don't have to fight this battle on our own. We are so glad that you are the source of our strength, that even as you call us to examine ourselves, you still keep our eyes fixed on you. So Lord, help us to be a holy people and to reflect your holy nature to a lost and dying world. Amen.